0: Hey all, I'm just back from meeting Peter Ballastat, a forage agronomist, an expert in cattle and animals and how you feed them for optimum health, etc. And there's a big conference going on in Dublin, Ireland over the next two days, and it's on the societal role of meat. So any of you low carbers and carnivores, etc. out there, it's going to be a great conference from a kind of an Irish government body Uh, Professor Frederick Leroy I met today also and he's going to be there and they're going to discuss the whole meat topic, you know, the nutrition, the importance in society and the climate and all of the other headwinds that are coming in hard against meat in our world today. So it's going to be a great conference. It's also free to sign up to watch all the great talks online. I have the link down below. So make sure you get in there. And I think the recording should be available later too, but get in ASAP. So here's me in Chagosk facility with Peter Ballastet, and we go through all of the key stuff relating to meat in society. I'm here in the Chagosk Agricultural Facility in Dublin, Ireland, and who has come
1: here for, uh, you can name the conference, Peter. It's the societal role of meat what the science says. And how am I supposed to pronounce this host organization? Chagask, I think, or Chagask. Even I could be wrong on that. (laughs) I'm not great.
0: (laughs) But hey, Peter, great to have you back here. Great to see you again, Ivor. And it's been some time. We had a chat in Corvallis, Oregon, I think, in a pub. And we had a couple other chats in various kind of nutrition conferences. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. We ran around in the metabolic health space. Absolutely. And Peter is a kind of, what your expertise is in animal uh, kind of foodstuffs
1: and all that, maybe give a brief summary. So my training is I'm a forage agronomist and a ruminant nutritionist. So things to do with pasture, hay, silage crops, and then cows, sheep, goats or any of the other ruminant
0: animals. Excellent. So you are an expert in feeding animals properly to get the best gains and but the healthiest meat and the healthiest products. And we might start with a couple of little things, myths that you blew away when we talked before. So really quickly, the concern around hormones, especially in US meat, might not be as
1: bad as people think, maybe a word on that. Indeed, if we measure what levels of hormones are in animals that receive implants versus those that don't, we're talking about something in the order of a nanogram difference. And meanwhile, lots of other foodstuffs have far more of these compounds than you would get in meat regardless of its management. So if you're eating eggs, for example, you would have a far higher, and I'm not concerned about eating eggs, but it's a matter of putting all these things in perspective. So no, the, the hormone use is certainly something that's been used to make people feel uncomfortable about eating meat. and isn't justified by the data yeah
0: or at least if there is an effect there it's highly likely tiny in the final meat that reaches the consumer nanogram or lower levels you know i think there's a limit to this the other thing was the grass-fed the wonder of grass-fed and you made the point that actually you know, they're finished on grains in the States in many cases, but a lot of what they ate during their life was essentially a foodstuff like grass. Is, or do I remember that correctly?
1: Absolutely. In the United States, something even for a commercial steer, typical steer, US production system, their lifetime feed consumption, only about ten percent of the feed that they consume in their lifetime is human edible. Now, You could argue whether we should be eating it, it's technically human-edible, most of that would be corn. Um, You look globally and the figure for all domesticated ruminants, all of the feed that they consume, only about 4% is human-edible. So the things that are commonly said, again, the data doesn't support them
0: right and you know it's mostly they're eating inedible grasses or forms of grasses stuff that's dirt cheap essentially and often on land that has no other use for humans particularly you know it's in ireland as an example ireland is brilliant because they're all naturally grass fed in fields mm-hmm. like they always were so ireland has an advantage that factory farming never really got a hold yet because we have vast quantities of lush grasses and we're still doing it, largely like the old ways, maybe in higher volume outfits,
1: but largely the same as in the past. Well, and certainly the landscape determines how well it's fit for ruminant animal production. And where you have large amounts of tillable land, then you're gonna find that people could make more growing those commodities or specialty crops than they could grazing them for cattle, for example. Now, maybe dairy might be different because dairy tends to be a higher return enterprise, but even with those situations where you're growing human edible crops, everything you grow and harvest isn't human edible. So you're left with a lot of what we would call byproducts, feed, feed stuffs, you could feed them to a ruminant, but not feed them to humans. So here we can take this byproduct and feed it to animals and again get a a higher value product out of it. So for example where we grow a lot of corn or maize um, you even where that's harvested for grain you then have all the residue that can be grazed as winter feed for cattle and you could go through a number of examples of that where you have animal agriculture integrated with cropping agriculture. So it's not an either or.
0: It's actually a kind of beautiful synergy because you're using all the waste products to feed the animals and then you're hyper-concentrating that stuff into nutritious, delicious meats, which are some of the most, or are the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet for Homo sapiens, for humans, especially when you add in organ meats and everything else. But the animal takes all of this kind of useless stuff mostly And it's mostly fed by what I think they call blue water. They talk about a lot of water being used per burger, Mm -hmm. but a lot of that is rainwater and waters that that's just there anyway. And within 20 minutes they're urinating it back out Mm -hmm. into the ground. Mm -hmm. So even the water is not a problem. It's all good, right? You're, you're making incredible foodstuffs from stuff that's either just
1: there or is waste. Well it it goes a little further I mean because I can see evidence of how putting animals into the cropping system improves the cropping system so yes absolutely something that is not edible by us and doesn't have another use is valuable as a feed resource but then the animal itself within that system produces benefits that lead to better crops, healthier soils, better water infiltration, those sorts of factors are becoming more, uh, people are becoming more aware of those than perhaps they were before. Um, Certainly the plant source foods vary far more in their nutritive quality and they tend to be lower in nutritive value for human use. And so, the animal-source foods are the highest-quality sources of the essential nutrients that humans need for proper development and function, and they tend to be more consistent. So, which makes sense—you've got all these um, uh, all, all these systems in place in the animal to make sure that homeostatically things are maintained. And so it's reason, whereas in plants you can have luxury consumption, you can have deficits, you can have maturity effects, the more mature a plant tissue becomes, the less digestible it becomes. Those sorts of things are all present in plants. They're not present in the animal source foods.
0: Yeah, and I won't even get into it. There's a significant minority of humans, even though we were always like over evolution, we were primarily hunters and that's what grew our, our huge brains was the nutrient density of meats and organ meats and scavenging. Uh, but we also ate plants, of course, but there are plant proteins that the classic example is gluten one percent of people will essentially die if they keep eating gluten but there are lots of other plant proteins that to varying degrees are problematic the beauty about the meat though is uh, probably because of the evolutionary history it's the cleanest possible diet when you tend to eat meats fish and eggs and maybe above ground vegetables that are less problematic in their protein content
1: well certainly the 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 protein the common conversation about protein has been oversimplified and when we're feeding monogastrics like you and me or like pigs and I'm not making any illusions here um, monogastrics need essential amino acids in our diet they must be present they must be digestible and they have to be present in the proper ratio to each other okay that those are three critical issues and with more sophisticated tools, we see how the animal source foods are even more important than we used to think they were in terms of having highly digestible forms of all of the essential amino acids and in the proper ratio. And so if one of the great advantages of ruminant animals is because of their digestive system, anatomy, and the relationship with this host of microorganisms in their reticulo- rumen you can actually have non-protein nitrogen in the diet say nitrate or non-protein nitrogen containing materials that those microorganisms can capture that nitrogen and convert it into amino acids their own microbial protein which the post-animal then digests in its acidic stomach. And so there is no essential amino acid in a ruminants diet. So this is yet one more of these really important ecological matchings, if you will, fits between the ruminants and the homo sapiens, both of which depend on grasslands.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the synergies, it's so beautifully elegant. Evolution, you know, we sprang forth from salvaging or carcasses, etc., and then became super hunters. But then we became animal husbandry uh, species. And for all the reasons you just said, it makes absolute elegant evolutionary sense. And again, no disrespect to people, in terms of religious beliefs, I'm using that as a model, Mm -hmm. uh, the evolutionary model. But either way, no matter what your belief, everything made sense. Until the last few decades, where a lot of strident fringe groups, but now getting a lot of support from from corporates, sadly, uh, decided that this whole thing does maybe not make sense. Uh, What do you think of the whole, the last 10 years of movements getting louder and louder, trying to overturn
1: science and overturn what we just said? Well, certainly they've gotten louder. Uh, I would push their influence back even until the 60s and 70s, and clearly that evidence was manifest when the first dietary goals for Americans, which was the Senate release Uh, the McGovern Committee release and then became Dietary Guidelines shortly after. So that influence has been there. Um, It's been coupled with things like um, the the dietary idea that this would be, if we followed their diet, we could avoid chronic diseases, the so-called killer diseases. It's also been tied into certain environmentalist thinking and then there's been some other things that have tied into it more late more recently we've of course heard very loudly that you could make a significant impact in climate change by your dietary choices um, and you could then find various misquotings or misunderstandings of the amount and role of enteric methane emissions from ruminants and from greenhouse gas emissions from other animal agriculture and there's a lot of oversimplification and misstatement that happens in those conversations as well but that's been a big driver lately we still have the voices of animal rightists which is a fringe uh, community to be sure shouldn't be confused with animal welfare um, two very different things um, and then we still have those occasional voices that try to tell us well if you don't eat meat you won't get heart disease you know if you only eat your healthy whole grains and and eat these vegetable sorry industrial oil products that you'll you know avoid all the problems that comes when you consume saturated fat and cholesterol those answers have uh, there's points have been pretty well answered, but they're still out there in the public. And, and you can find a lot of people who still think that's true. Uh. Yeah, absolutely. The whole That whole latter one you
0: described, Peter, to be honest, that's become more openly debated and it's become a bit more clear that that was nonsense uh, about the health aspects of eating meat. But the environmental one is certainly, I think, a burgeoning or growing one. And I mean, I looked into CO2 and anthropomorphic or whatever uh, change to the planet's weather systems. And I'm not impressed at all with all the modeling and all the, what I perceive as bias in the climate change industry. And just things like the CO2 has correlated with temperature of the planet over the last millions of years. But the CO2 follows the temperature rise by around 800 years because the oceans rise when the planet warms and the oceans are the biggest store of CO2 and the higher temperature water dissolves less CO2. I don't want to go down a hole there, but I I agree. And the methane, the methane one, without getting into the science, is, is just kind of absurd. And yet they bang the methane drum even more than the CO2, which is mostly from fossil fuel. It's like there's an agenda to hurt our healthy meats, even beyond everything else that could be focused on in climate. They keep focusing on meat.
1: Well, I, I don't, I try not to ascribe motives to people that I haven't met, and you know I'm only dealing with my perceptions. What I do try to do is focus on critical issues, um, and one of my comments is that I think we have far more high-quality evidence of human beings being harmed by too little animal source food than we have of evidence of humans being harmed by too much. I think the too much narrative is exactly that. It's a narrative. It's largely based on nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease. I understand that that's a, a controversial position for some but I'm uh, certainly willing to have that conversation. But it's undeniable that we have too many people in the world today that are harmed by having too little. And the numbers are astounding. Uh, even in, And that cuts across high in, uh, country, income countries, uh, income levels, to the point where something like one in three women are suffering from uh, micronutrient deficiencies this is a paper that was just re- recently released, but globally, somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of children five years and under are stunted due to two, you know, a lack of these essential nutrients that are best provided by animal-sourced foods. Um, a third of women of childbearing age are anemic, again, because they have... So this is an issue that's out there, and then I, I try to make the point that what we're seeing in the metabolic illness constellation is malnutrition. We've been confused by people who want to say that obesity is the cause of these diseases and obesity as they would say is the result of overeating or not exercising enough. And my point back would be I think we have good evidence that it's the result of malnutrition. It is another metabolic illness. It's one of this constellation that we call a syndrome. Okay, all that to the, to the, the point that this malnutrition is a global issue across income countries, uh, income levels, um, that the healthcare systems of the world are unsustainable and if we're going to have an honest conversation about sustainability which many people want to talk about you know sustainable food systems or sustainable agriculture systems rightly so but we ought to be concerned about economic societal as well as environmental issues and too often it devolves to only looking at environmental issues and typically only one environmental issue and that being the anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, and often that's misstated. So we need to get people to understand that this is a very complicated situation. There are pluses and minuses, but people notice when the food system breaks down, i.e. food costs go up, food isn't available in the market, then everything else that's dependent on that becomes secondary. And so I I want people to understand that the most impactful thing they can do, rather than their dietary shift in the name of some global thing, is to improve their own health and the health of their family. And that as a result of that, you will have impacts beyond your ability to see them now or predict them in a model. So we, we can talk about how um, in the last scientific assessment, the annual of the the report of the IPCC, they report that they've probably been using the wrong metric to assess the global warming potential of enteric methane. Enteric methane is that methane that is burped note, out of the rumen, um, and it's a natural product of the fiber digestion process. So the more digestible the ration, the lower the methane emissions. And various people are working on supplements that could be given to an animal to lower. So those things are possible. But by improving feed quality, by improving animal productivity, you lessen the emission intensity per pound or kilo of meat. So those are things that we could do globally. But they've been using the wrong metric. And so that metric probably has been overestimating the impact by three to four times.
0: Yeah. And you know what, Peter? I think that's, and in fairness, you don't want to go too deep into this anthropogenic, but that's the tip of the iceberg, what you were saying there. It it is just the tip of the iceberg of, of the bad science that's involved. So even if we We say there is a problem with CO2, and it is a major problem as opposed to a minor, and we accept all that. I think in America a couple of years ago, and last time we talked, I I threw out these figures, 9% of emissions relate to agriculture. I think 4% of is meat, 2% of that is beef, and 5% is plant foods. But if you take away some of the meat, you're going to end up roughly burning as much energy to make plants instead. So it's not even... It doesn't, even at that level, it makes no sense. It's all hinging on the methane, and I think that's why they focus on the methane. Mm. Because of what I just said, you make less meat, you're gonna do environmental emissions to make plants to eat. So the methane is focused on because
1: it's specifically anti-meat. Mm-hmm. Could, could uh, <laughs> I'm not-
0: uh, Clever. Yeah, they yeah.
1: There's a, there's a paper that was released, I forget the year, but mm-hmm. um, they looked at, they, they modeled, what would happen if we removed animal agriculture from the U.S. and what they projected in their model was that would result in a 2.5% reduction in anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Um, If you looked at it globally it would be less than half a percent but it would come, as all things do, with a cost and the cost would be imbalancing our food ecosystem and their quote was, the, the creation, and I would say exacerbation, of nutrient deficiencies. We are experiencing nutrient deficiencies in the United States today. And if we take away the best source of those nutrients, okay. Um, and I'm not convinced, again, we could argue about models any time. I'm, I'm sure that if we dug into that model closer, we could find that they're doing the same thing that others have done historically, which is undervalue animal source foods for their essential amino acid. So, one paper um, that was released in 21, I believe, um, if you look on a label or in a table, it says protein, grams. Well, that's crude protein. And crude protein isn't valuable for humans. We need to know, and in fact the FAO some years ago said we should start labeling individual essential amino acids. Well, you know, how long do you want the label to get? And uh, But the point was that if all we're looking at is crude protein, then you could talk yourself into believing that this Value of crude protein from a plant source food is equal mm-hmm. to the same amount of crude protein from an animal source food. When in fact, that's not at all true. And one effort went and looked at food availability data for like a hundred and some out of the the poorest countries and territories in the world. There were over a hundred. And you look at, and, and, and you're driving towards this low target, it's not a target, it's a minimum, RDA for protein. So they used that as the, the target, and they looked at the total plant and animal source protein supply, and they said, well, look, only these few down here at the lowest level of income are below the target. Well, okay, then they went through and they separated out plant and animal, and they looked for essential amino acids, and they looked for the utilizable lysine, which tends to be the globally limiting. What they found was none of those met the target at current levels. So depending on how sophisticated you want to get, you can take it from where almost everybody meets it to nobody meets it. Yep. And, and, and then that has an environmental impact in, or at least a, um, a, a, a consequence in the conversation because what it did was it took the emission intensity of dairy down by a factor of 100 and made it comparable to the plant juice beverages. Right. Okay, so as we get more sophisticated and we play the, the catch-up, You can make a claim, but it takes a while for people to assemble the evidence to combat the claim. And so now we have this evidence that's saying, you know, anything we do to produce food is going to have an economic or uh, environmental consequence. How do we measure those? How do we weigh those? And the more and more we look at it, the more we realize just how true it is to say that animal source food production is essential to sustainable food systems.
0: Absolutely, and you know, that's a great, a great phrase to finish it with because I know you've got to get back to the, the meetings there. But you know what? I think, and again, my history is decoding not just data, but also kind of skullduggery in data. Mm. And I've always said for the last 10 years, you can take the same scenario and you can literally turn black into white with how you measure and how you model. And I think we'll find out in time not just what you mentioned, but so much more will have been essentially biased at every turn in the modeling and the analysis to be detrimental towards uh, meat and animals in our food system. And I think that's a philosophy thing that's gripped the world for decades, like you say, or even going back to the the last century, uh, perceptions. But but anyway, we'll see. Yeah, metrics matter.
1: (laughs) And the devil's in the denominator. Yes,
0: (laughs) And if you don't measure it, you can't fix it. If you don't measure it, you can't understand it.
1: That's it. And when you improve your health, you are improving the world. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you, Ivor. It's great to catch up.
0: Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter and again the links are down below for you to join up and be able to see all of the talks and the debate around the societal role of meat. And please do share it on with people so that everyone can engage with this fascinating conference in Dublin, Ireland.